some people mentioned in uh, coming to this retreat that they were drawn to it because of the five hours working each day or rather rather than being drawn to the work they were drawn to the fact that therefore there would be less time they would have to sit cross-legged <laughs> each day and certainly there's a there can be less intensity in some ways in not having such a strong sense of the container of the retreat as being very much about formal sitting practice. And yet in just the same way as sitting practice through the very stillness of it offers us a chance using awareness to see our lives, our habit patterns our movements and motivations reflected in the mirror of awareness then in just that same way the time spent in working offers us the same opportunity to see ourselves reflected in the mirror of whatever activity we're engaging in if we're meeting that activity consciously with awareness with interest with sincerity with passion so I I spoke a little bit on the opening evening about two different aspects two, two qualities that we can bring to the working the quality of offering or giving ourselves to the task and the quality of being present with it. So I'd just like to explore those two things a little bit more and to put them in the Eastern context. Those two aspects would be called Bhakti Yoga and Karma Yoga. So Yoga not to be confused with the sort of distorted uh, keep fit that it's sometimes uh, relegated rather unfortunately to yoga means union and in the Indian system there's different yogas eight different yogas yoga of knowledge jnana yoga Yoga of action, karma yoga. Yoga of uh, bodily awareness, hatha yoga. Yoga of devotion, bhakti yoga, and so on and so on. So, these two aspects of work that we've mentioned, bhakti yoga and karma yoga. Bhakta means devotion giving oneself to and for those of us who have some difficulty with the religious world the idea of devotion might seem a little uncomfortable it can sometimes be equated with a kind of blind uh, kowtowing 
devotion may be motivated by uh, fear in some cases fear of a jealous God that kind of language that maybe makes us feel uncomfortable so if that's the case if you don't like the, uh, the, the word devotion then easily can well, surrender maybe is even more difficult than that <laughs> but that sense of a deep willingness of the heart to give to give of oneself what does it mean to work in that spirit so that rather than us doing a job we're practicing bhakti yoga yoga so means union union with life union with the ultimate union with God union with the way things are again take your pick in terms of the language whatever works union through devotion union through the deep willingness of heart to connect with suddenly this working retreat sounds rather exciting there's five hours of stripping paint or weeding vegetables suddenly it sounds like some sort of profound esoteric thing union with life through the deep willingness of the heart to connect I wonder if that's what, how we've been working that's certainly the opportunity for us in being here on this retreat so what do we mean by devotion by that willingness of the heart to connect the quality of our work is very very much determined and I, d- I certainly don't mean to def- do, uh, confine this to this retreat it's equally valid for any sphere of activity any sphere of activity working here or working elsewhere spending time with friends colleagues discussing in various ways leisure time things we enjoy things we don't enjoy any activity we can imagine the attitude the direction of the heart the intent in the mind is very very important the Buddha said nine tenths of action turns on the tip of intention what's our intention in working I remember once uh, probably several times if I'm honest on retreat in different retreats having a rather less than pure motivation with my work period and in this case chopping vegetables very uh, 
I had lots of nice ideas about veging, chopping vegetables. The Zen tradition, there's lots and lots of teachings about the, the kitchen. And in fact, the cook in the Zen monastery is, is the second position after the abbot or meditation master. The kitchen is the kind of uh, spiritually important place. Should tell the managers that. And so, lots of nice ideas about uh, kind of Zen cookery or whatever it was. But I, what I noticed in the chopping of vegetables was ha- was how mean spirited I was capable of being. I knew very well about bhakti yoga, but it didn't seem to make much difference. What I noticed was I was much more interested in how well I was chopping the carrots in relationship to (laughs) that guy next to me. If I'm chopping better or worse, faster or slower. If the shapes of my carrots are more pretty. Oh, his are. Is that as fast as you can peel? Watch this. Of course, the guy next to me was probably being very mindful and connected and fully enjoying where I was in some kind of dreadful state peeling my carrots. And the fruit, of course, of a mean-spirited action is that we end up feeling mean. If we want to, want to understand karma, it's right there. It's not that if I peel a carrot with a bad intention, if I kill a, peel a carrot feeling mean-spirited, I'm going to come back as a carrot and be meanly peeled. Or that I have to keep coming back peeling carrots till I get it right. The fruit, karma means action, literally. Cause and effect, action and reaction. So, as Bob Marley, great guru Bob Marley says, every little action, there's a reaction. The action of peeling carrots with that contraction of mind, feeling competitive, feeling tense, feeling more concerned with all kinds of irrelevant details about speed and efficiency and prettiness of carrot shapes. The result of that is feeling mean, feeling tense. Ow! And so, rather embarrassingly slowly, I would say, I learned to transform my relationship to chopping carrots. To allow the activity to become something beautiful. To allow the activity to become something to which the heart is inclined. incline. To, at risk I hesitate to say this, but to love the carrot. <laughs> 
I hesitate only because of the sounds a bit silly. The actual movement is very sweet. The sense of connecting with an activity through the wish of the heart to be intimate with it. And discovering through that activity then the sense of well-wishing for others. People are going to eat those carrots. Therefore that sense of exquisite intimacy with all those people who will eat those carrots. And that sense then of devotion, of a gift, of generosity of spirit, of interpenetration, of a deep kind of closeness with oneself being involved in the deeply involved in the action, with others sense of hand to carrot to chop to pot to table to other people's bellies and to life itself and what I notice in the eating as well a deepening appreciation not just as an idea not as a momentary reflection but as an actual a revelation of sorts being deeply touched by the fact of the miracle rather of eating of receiving of the dedication and care of others that's gone into the meal and so a whole series of relationships to the work to the sense of participation and therefore that going on to the eating and the whole relating with other people on the retreat transformed through the willingness to turn the heart towards what I was doing. And therefore in the same way we see the karma of that working. Return towards something with real care and attention. The fruits of that are we feel caring. If we do something mean-spiritedly, we feel mean. If we do something caringly, we feel caring. And there's a deep recognition of that sweet quality. The heart responds, the heart learns to trust that, to give of itself. See the relationship between the giving and the receiving ourselves in the moment. Like Christ said, give that you shall receive. Or something, I'm often misquoting Jesus. But uh, something close to that, give that you shall receive. Again, it's a commentary on karma, but not give now in order that you're stocking up some kind of cosmic merit and that later on somebody will give to you. That's, that's no kind of gift at all. That's called being greedy and making it look like generosity. 
I'll give, I'll give, and I'm creating a stockpile in the sky that'll come back later. Once in Bodh Gaya in India, in a, a very cold year, a businessman flew in from Thailand and came to the monastery and spent twelve and a half thousand dollars on blankets for the poor people of the village, which was a wonderful thing. It was about two or three degrees in the mornings in the village, and it's one of the, the parts of India that has the most extreme climate. Budgaya is the village where the Buddha was enlightened, and it's now one of the most desperately, in fact, the most desperately poor part of India. So it has the highest illiteracy rate, has the most abominable political corruption, and unimaginable poverty and difficulty there. And the temperature can get up into the 50 degrees centigrade in the summer. And then can, they can have e extremely strong monsoons, and then it can get very, very cold. And the children that come to the monastery in the morning, often barefoot, with one very, very thin layer on, and two or three degrees temperature, so very cold. And so they were extremely grateful for the blankets, and it was certainly uh, a, an important and very beneficial act of charity, if you like. But... For the, ma for the man's internal process, when asked, we said to him, oh, that's, that's wonderful, that's a very generous thing. He said, oh yes, he said, every year I give more. And every year my business gets better and better. So, this must be the blessings of the Buddha. This is the cultural Buddhism I was saying about the other day. So he says, I make m so much merit when I give blankets or when I give money that my business goes better and better. So this year, I really want to make a lot of money. So I'm giving an extra big amount in the hope that my business will double. Where's the generosity there? It doesn't take away, like I say, from the, the, the great benefit of the act and all those people that benefited. But, it would be difficult to see that as an inclination of the heart, as an act of devotion, as a true act of generosity. Because there's more interest in what I'm going to get than in what I'm giving. So, Christ, as I say, says, give that you shall receive, not in that sense, but in the sense that in the act of giving, in the act of kindness, in the act of giving of ourselves, one feels the nobility of it, the sweetness of it, the joy, the ease, the expansiveness of having an open-handed relationship to what one's doing the sweetest way to chop carrots is with a sense of kindness, care and offering. And if we can find that way of relating to 
our work, whatever it be, we benefit immensely in that. Through your kindness in coming here and offering these hours of work, Gaia House benefits enormously and the managers have have commented over the day how nice it feels, a kind of industrious sort of feeling to the place as cobwebs get swept and walls get painted and uh, things that haven't been cleaned for a while get cleaned. And the sense of how, how nice that is for Gaia House. But in that there's also the opportunity in the giving that you're all doing so kindly here for a deep kind of receiving as well and if we're really attentive to that if we're really close with that if we really see the act of giving and of receiving being absolutely inseparable which is actually how they are then our sense of separation from the activity starts to dissolve if in the gift there's also the receiving what does that say about our strange idea that we're a limited human being over here and the rest of life exists all out there in the very act of inclining our heart towards something in noticing the sense of giving of ourselves and in the receiving that joy that sense of connection that sense of gratitude giving and receiving come right together One's giving, but not giving to. One's receiving, and yet not receiving from. And at this point, the poor old mind starts to get a bit confused. Because mind is limited to ideas of this and that, me and you, here and there. But somehow the heart can intuit that in a way that can't be thought about, can't be conceived of. And yet, wherein there can be the recognition of yoga, back to yoga, a union of a merging, of a non separation through inclining the heart. And the other aspect is that of karma yoga. Karma yoga means yoga, the union through action. In the early 90s, so about 15 to 12 years ago, I lived in the Himalayas for somewhere between two and three years on and off with a 
hermit monk and he was very big on karma yoga and I remember initially he encouraged me while I was I took some weeks to paint all the to rub down and then repaint all the window frames and shutters at the ashram uh, and while doing it he encouraged me to read the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavad Gita is kind of one of the central texts in the Hindu tradition and it's ostensibly a, a conversation between Krishna and a prince called Arjuna who's about to go to war and it's really all about karma yoga it's all about action and our ideas of the fruits of action and karma yoga encourages us and in painting these windows Babaji encouraged me very much to withdraw our mind from results he would say don't worry about the windows don't worry about the paint don't worry about the painting just do just do you see you don't hold the paintbrush you don't paint the windows God takes care of all that if you don't like the language life takes care of all that and it was, it was a very I certainly was uncomfortable in some ways with the, the God language and I was certainly very very unused to the idea that it wasn't me doing it that I wasn't responsible for the results we have a, we have a very kind of results and orientated goal orientated culture that <coughs> we grew up in and we're encouraged very much to go for it to make it happen and to uh, get results and then here was Babaji telling me that, it's, that all that's none of my business and sure enough if I managed to really just drop all that the very things that I was saying in terms of the, the vegetable chopping the competitiveness the rush the wish to impress the measurement the distraction all the stuff which I'll maybe unpack some of in a, little, in a, in a moment then all I found was that sense of uniting with actually before my ideas of what's happening before my descriptions of what's happening before my old imagery of myself and windows and all that stuff it's just a sense of life's movement 
in this case hand going up and down, up and down and it dips into the pot, up and down, up and down just a sense of life moving and at the end of the day by some miracle all the windows were bright red common sense tells us that we painted the windows but if we look deeply life tells us differently so what happens what can happen confessions of the yogi mind what can happen in the process just of working firstly of course the mind just can go here and there and here and there and we, we, we touched on this last night a little bit the way the mind can just go off to the past positively or negatively so it can go off into nostalgia or it can go off into regret it can go into the future again positively or negatively worry or hope, fantasy and then at some point, thank God miraculously, life wakes us up out of that and we find ourselves here again what happens though when the mind goes off in those ways it has a charge whether it's positive or whether it's negative it has a charge to it that suggests to us some degree of importance so if we take any, any of those four examples that I just give we go off to um, whatever it is some sense of regret oh I shouldn't have done that some image impacts on the mind if there's, if there's clarity if there's stability if there's the connection in the brightness of knowing the regret arises oh I remember that situation I shouldn't have done just like a bubble the mind has this kind of whiny voice often bursts in in the connection one says oh old stuff and we just kind of let it go by like the spring I was talking about last night but if awareness is weak it's not quite accurate to say that but if uh, if our attention is susceptible to be caught up we find ourselves led away into that regret we find ourselves believing in it and as I say it doesn't matter if it's regret, nostalgia, hope worry, whatever it has a charge to it it gives us a sense of something concrete even though it's just a replay of what? some distant memory that's absolutely unrepeatable that's absolutely gone forever that there's absolutely nothing we can do to change it but it comes back and we say oh shouldn't have done that oh I could have done this oh what if I'd done that oh and we run it over and over with the hilarious idea that it could make a difference we think we're solving our problems <laughs> but of course we're just piling them up eventually life can't take it anymore and says for God's sake wake up and here we are painting the window 
because of the charge that's there, seems like some issue of my life. We can't help but measure the difference between this thing with charge and where we are now. Painting the windows. So inevitably, we get frustrated or impatient. I've got to deal with my life. But here I am painting the windows. What life is it that we're talking about? The only life there is, is painting the windows. Where the hell's the rest of it? Just like right now, the only life there is, is here. Speaking, or listening, or fidgeting, or whatever we're doing at the moment. Where's the rest of it? Is there any rest? That's the danger. The Buddha spoke about the promise and the danger with the mind, with that attraction towards things, the attraction towards the unpleasant or the negative things, or the attraction towards the positive and the pleasant things. Promises, they seem like they're offering us something tangible. The danger is they corrupt our capacity to be right here now our capacity to meet life in the only place it really is and so sometimes we're busy uh, wallowing in regret or busy uh, wallowing in nostalgia or busy wallowing in uh, the future in one or other way Life taps us on the shoulder and says, hello. And we wake up. But we kind of, mm, yeah, not now. (laughs) That's a real tragedy. Life wakes us up and there's some glimmer of a voice. It says, oh yes, oh yes, I'm I'm supposed to be paying attention. Oh, but it's so interesting, it's so much more interesting. And we go back into that sort of bleary, wherever we were. What we're doing in that is we're reinforcing our tendency to give reality to that which has none. To give solidity to that which is nebulous, almost non-existent. To give credibility to the illusion of linear progression, past, present, future. I come from there. I'm here, I'm going there. So beware. Harmless. Think, oh well, just another five minutes of reverie, and then I'll come back and do that practice thing. And I don't wish to, in any way, put some pressure and tension that when we wake up in the midst of our reverie, we think, oh no. I shouldn't be doing that. But rather to look and see, to see the promise and to see the danger. And if we look at that, if we notice that, in our own experience, we have the opportunity to learn something both extremely important and extremely useful 
about our relationship to time, to situations and to ourselves. And through that seeing, we'll strengthen and cultivate our, the sincerity and the p- possibility for being here. But the appreciation that this is where it's happening, this is where it's at. This, whatever the this is, whatever activity that this is, whatever situation that this is. Another thing we can easily get into, I'm calling it yogi mind or confessions of a yogi, but it's really just confessions of a human being. We have the the good fortune, although sometimes it feels like the bad fortune, to be actually bringing awareness to these things. Happening for everybody. Everybody seduced endlessly by the past the future and equally of course seduced by the present by our endless descriptions and analysis of the present but we're actually bringing awareness to that actually looking to see what's going on here what is it that I'm doing that's tripping me up in life that's causing me to make my life complicated difficult because otherwise as somebody remarked to me today in an interview everything's idyllic here heating is just right not too hot, not too cold food pretty good no money worries while we're here no family complexities no time pressures no decisions to make fantastic and yet in the midst of that we manage to have a hard time we manage to get confused get impatient get lonely get uh, frustrated get impatient get compulsive So we see that no matter what the external conditions are, no matter how nicely we might like to organise our life, and this, this particular configuration called Gaia House may be your ideal configuration, it may be very, very far from your <laughs> ideal configuration. But however we manage to organize and we can put a huge amount of time and effort and energy and neurosis into trying to organize the conditions of life. However well we manage that doesn't make a blind bit of difference really to the quality of our experience. How often have you heard people lamenting that it was all set up to be perfect and then something it went wrong and then that feeling that it's unfair feeling it just I really tried so hard and then I didn't 
I didn't like it, it didn't work out, somebody said the wrong thing, it all got ruined, it rained, whatever it is. As if somehow life ought to be turning on the weather and all going rushing round to accommodate us. Instead of which we've got it utterly the wrong way round. It's us who needs to accommodate life. So one of the other things that easily happens in, uh, in this case in work, but in, in any situation, is we start to get judgmental. Again, I referred to this with my, with my carrot thing. How well I'm chopping, how well he's chopping. Faster, slower, better, worse. And that can easily go on in relationship to other people in the same way as I mentioned the poor innocent bystander who never knew I guess how harsh I was on him for his carrot chopping but equally it can go on just as an internal process with ourselves judging so painfully our progress our practice what, we th- what others might think of us, what we think of ourselves. It's a terrible curse that so often we live under. The curse of that inner judge or critic, even tyrant at times. And our work is really an opportunity to notice that and to see, can we recognize those voices without having to give them the authority to describe who we are? That voice that says, you didn't do that very well. Or whatever it might be. Just it's like a it's just a bubble, you know. Birds sing and go, and then mind sings and says, "You didn't do that very well." And because it seems strange idea, but it seems to be going on in here. We point to our head. We say, "Oh, in here. Where in here?" <coughs> okay, okay. If we opened it up, would we find some little guy in there saying? <laughs> If we really investigate, we're not used to this way of looking, but if we really investigate, what does that mean, in here? In here. Hello? Where do I hear birdsong? Do I hear birdsong out there? Where's my hearing? Is it out, out the hall somewhere? No, hearing is here. I don't even mean to place that spatially when I say it. It's here. That's all I can really say about my hearing, is that it happens here, here. I don't mean here as in a physical location. I mean here as in this, here. That's where my hearing of birdsong happens. And that's where my hearing of that stupid little voice happens. You didn't do that very well. I don't take the birdsong as being frightfully significant and important. Because I've given myself, I've told myself, oh, it's out there. It's not me. 
It's true it's not me, in, in some ways. But if that's true, it has to be true that that silly little voice isn't me. It's just like that bird sings. Mind rants. What's the difference? What's the difference? This is not a, a good idea or a, a neat little uh, bit of semantics. This is an invitation to look and uproot the tyrant that we believe has some authority over our life. The tyrant that exists in no more or no less significant way than <coughs> birds sing and sun shines and brushes paint. It's an expression of life. Didn't do that very well. And we fall for it with incredibly tragic and painful consequences. We believe it to be who we are. We believe it to actually say something about me. My favourite example of this, and and I, I hear it pretty much in every retreat, is the example where somebody sitting trying to look like they're meditating feeling despondent I'm not getting it I'm useless just these harsh words words we would never would never dream of saying to someone else we never when the, when the retreat finishes and we get to meet at breakfast time you're never going to say, oh, you look useless in meditation. <laughs> you didn't look like you were very mindful at all. I didn't like the way you were painting that uh, window frame. We, we, we just wouldn't dream of it, would we? How long would we tolerate somebody who spoke like that to us? And yet we put up with it from ourselves. It's, it's comic, but it's really tragic as well. So we sit there and telling ourselves what a useless yogi we are. And we can't keep going any longer, so we just sort of gaze around. Sure, everyone else looks like a Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> when we notice ourselves really beaten down by that judge or critic to actually be willing to say oh, let it rant let it rant so that we can see the absurdity of it that we can actually see it really doesn't say anything about who we are arises out of silence it blows its way through and it dissolves into silence in just the same way that birdsong does so there's an invitation 
for us to be light to hold our sense of practice lightly in the face of distraction that comes and goes in the face of that judgment and self-beating that can get such a grip on the mind and we see all this happening in the mirror of some simple activity painting, weeding, washing cleaning, whatever we're doing that's what makes the cleaning significant it's rather paradoxical but we, cl- we clean just for the sake of cleaning if we're cleaning in order to um, get some result then it's problematic we stay stuck in the struggle in the impatience We get into competitiveness in the way I just described. The very tense energy that we put into the cleaning in order to in order to stimulates the mind to get distracted to the past, to the future. And yet if we're able just to clean for the sake of cleaning, to clean to actually feel the movement of the hand rubbing the quietness in which it's happening, the sounds of the brush, the smell of the disinfectant, whatever it might be, to actually connect with the immediacy of that. We can drop any sense of what we're trying to get out of it, what we're trying to get done, what we're trying to get achieved, what we're trying to get finished with, what we're trying to get onto that's more interesting afterwards. If we can just relinquish that, and clean for the sake of cleaning. Not only do we enter the, the mystery and the miracle of cleaning, whereby all we do is allow life to live itself and find ourselves included in that. And at the end of the day, God's cleaned guy house. Not only do we enter into that miracle of life living itself. But in the moment that we let go of our agendas and our struggles and our trying and our results, then in stopping trying to attain anything, we find understanding is very near. Connection is very close. The inclining of the heart is in the centre of that activity. And the sense of me and the job to be done and the doing of it and the movement through time and what I'm going to get and what I'm going to do afterwards and all that complexity 
just doesn't seem very relevant. Life is the doer. Life is the action. Life brings forth the result. And everything is included in that. Me, you, them, this and that. Everything. Without need for name or form or difference, everything is included in that. And may that understanding, that connection, that devotion, that inclining of the heart be the fruits of the time we spend here together in the service of working and awakening. May our Dharma practice here and our discoveries together be for the genuine welfare and benefit of ourselves, one another and all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.